I think if you're going to use public funds, you should fund things that are going to last. And by last, I mean long lived assets, assets that will be 30 years at least in terms of their useful life. Welcome to episode 455 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Rye Marcatilio McCracken here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today, we're joined by Jonathan Chambers, a partner at Connexon. Connexon has helped rural electric cooperatives build fiber-to-the-home networks since its founding five years ago. In this episode, Christopher and John talk about ideas for how to improve structuring rural broadband subsidies in a way that takes best advantage of fiber-to-the-home networks today, as systems which, to a large extent, rely on physical infrastructure that will last for decades and decades to come. Jonathan and Chris dig into what this would mean for funding projects, and how it would change the way we think about an approach connecting rural communities in the future. Now here's Christopher, talking with Jonathan. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. Today I'm talking with one of my favorite guests, probably the person who's been on here the most, I think, after me, John Chambers, a partner with Connexon. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you, Chris. Uh, it's quite a distinction if I've been there uh, more than anyone else, maybe I'm overstayed my welcome but oh, thanks no. for inviting we'll have to we'll have to count it up i think you know there there might be some competition and you know maybe i'll have people fighting to get on to try to to get more appearances than you and that's the dynamic that i want um for for people who are just finding me because of um my newfound fame after this show publishes um tell us quickly about connexon so we do one thing uh we work with rural electric co-ops to build last mile fiber to the home networks in rural America. That's the, that's the only kind of network we build, fiber to the home networks. And our um, objective is always the same. Build a fiber network to every single member of an electric co-op so that every single member has access to the same levels of service at the same affordable prices. And we've, uh, we've been doing that since we were founded five years ago by my business partner, Randy Clint. We have 50, 60 electric co-op fiber projects ongoing right now. It's, um, I'd say it is a movement, not quite in the way that the 1930s were a movement in the uh, building out uh, electric facilities all across rural America. Um, but I'd say it's a close cousin. There are, there are, you know, there are themes that are the same. There are parallels to the electrification of America. It's a, it's a wonderfully rewarding line of work to be in. Now, you and I were on a call last week, and you brought up an idea that you've been noodling over. I think you and I talked about it a little bit, and I... Um, actually, just sort of sent a note to Harold Feld, who's been on the show a few times, and Harold has long argued um, that we should fund infrastructure and things, um, physical things out in the world, and not like business models or services and things like that. And frankly, I always thought it sounded good, but it sounded complicated and different, and I didn't pursue it too much. And then when you and I were in this meeting, I started trying to pin you down a little bit on it. And then I ran it past Harold, and he was like, I want to know more. Like, tell me about this. I've been talking about this for years. And so I said, well, let's get John on a show, and I'll try to nail him down. So what is this idea? It has seemed to be difficult for 
government agencies, state, federal, whether they're, it uh, doesn't almost matter what the, what the agency is, difficult to do a couple of things when it comes to funding rural broadband. One of the difficulties has been in defining what it is to fund, and most of the definitions revolve around speed. It's understandable. Speed is a, you know, people, <laughs> they don't really understand speed, but, but at least they're numbers that they can, you know, they can compare, like, like one speed's faster than another speed, which might connote that the one thing is better than another thing. So most of the discussion since broadband has been discussed as something to fund publicly, has been around speed. Four megabits per second down, one meg up, 10 down, one up, 25 down, three up, 100 down, 20 up, 50 down, 10 up, a gigabit down. You know, it's always about speed. And, and the thing that has frustrated me and that I've argued against, and you'll see if you look at any blog posts uh, that I write or speeches that I've given, I often say broadband is not a speed. Um, I never win these arguments, but it's 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 my point. My point being, broadband since the beginning has been about transmission media. Are you going to use copper? Are you going to use coaxial cable? Are you going to use fiber or spectrum? I, I want to I want to put a quick note in here because this is something that. I feel like policymakers are very nervous about. And in grad school, there's this sense of like, you don't want government to pick winners and losers. That's, exactly. that's the issue, right? And so government doesn't want to come out and say, well, we're going to put fiber optics in statute. And, and I agree that I feel like if I'm, if I'm spending my money, if I'm spending even other people's money, which I think is a higher responsibility in life, I'm saying we should spend it in the fiber optics. But let me just say for a second also, like I can appreciate that what happens in the reason that people have concerns about that is you put fiber optics in statute. If something better were to come along, you still have fiber optics in statute. So these reasons aren't unreasonable, but we have to use good judgment about when to use them. And in this case, I think it often results in using public money in ways that are not going to build what's in the long-term interests of the region, the community, the, this, this, the country, whatever. That, that's exactly right. They're, they're, they're sides of the same coin. The technology or the speeds those particular transmission medium can deliver. What should you invest public money in? Which is why also that gets wrapped around this particular axle is this question about technological neutrality. Can't, should the government pick whether, whether the term is pick winners and losers or should be technologically neutral? It comes down to the same thing. And then, and then folks say, okay, but policymakers say, but we need to fund, we need to define what we're going to fund. And that ends up devolving to speeds. We can't define it in terms of technology. We can't define it in terms of transmission media. Therefore, we're going to define it in terms of speed. And, 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 and so here, getting back to your Harold Feld comment, I too think the government should, should fund things but the physical things shouldn't just be any physical thing. Because again, once again, you'd fall into this problem of people saying, all right, but I think, you know, you should fund a, a particular, you know, piece of equipment. D-slam. Yeah. And, and, and if you had asked the FCC what's to fund in 
2010, 2011, when it started spending money, public money on broadband, well, the FCC ended up modeling a GPON fiber to the home network, yet it started to fund speeds, which meant it was copper to D slams. So it was funding effectively more D slams. You wouldn't want the government to pick that either. So what I think is a better approach is to fund public money should go for long-term infrastructure. There's a lot of talk about infrastructure bills and how you style a particular infrastructure bill and whether what the requirements should be. But the first requirement, and I tell you, I, I, I will follow up with Harold. It's been a while since we've spoken. I think if you're going to use public funds, you should fund things that are going to last. And by last, I mean long, lived assets. Assets that will be 30 years at least in terms of their useful life. And if the public money is going for, for long-lived assets, you've got a better chance of getting it right. That is, you've got a better chance of spending the money on things that will last, things that investors would invest in today. Specifically, of course, you know, what's going to last for 30 years? Well, in the broadband industry, you know, polls last for 30 plus years. Steel strand lasts for 30 plus years. And for people who are confused, steel strand is used between the poles to wrap the fiber around so that it's, um, right. it's supported. When you're building aerial plant, you typically, you put strand between the poles and then you lash fiber. Then the fiber itself, the glass, the fiber, also 30 plus uh, a year asset. Our U.S. Uh, rural Utility Service considers fiber to be a 35-year asset. Corning tells me they think of it as a 40-year asset. The nation still today uses fiber that was deployed in 19, the 1970s, so it's likely a 50-year asset. It doesn't matter the specific year. It's a 30-plus year asset. Now, radio equipment or electronics, when we deploy fiber networks, you, of course, have to put in electronics, optical line terminals, optical network terminals, core routers, other. None of those are 30-year assets, and I would not spend any public money on those things. Not, not, not because I don't think those things are necessary, but those are a, a small proportion of the total cost of the network, and those things have to be replaced in some cases every five to seven years, in some cases every 10 years, but they're not going to last 30 plus years. So I, I do think that if we focus the policymakers' attention on the longevity of the assets and let, let the private sector people like me who make investments invest our money in the, the short-lived assets, whatever that be, Again, radio equipment like Wi-Fi, optical network terminals, uh, core routers, all the rest, then you've got a better chance of structuring a public funding program that puts the money into the right types of asset. Now, would you include into that steel towers? You're going to put up a tower? Sure, it's not, you know, if somebody applies for it and that's what they think public money should go for, yeah, I suppose. I would structure a program around a couple of other things though. 
yeah, I wouldn't just spend money on whatever anybody wants. <laughs> so the FCC developed a couple of cost models, um, which are useful tools. So, a, a I mean, for people who are not familiar, I think no one, no one really knows how much it costs to build, you know, an entire state. No one knows how much it builds, knows cost to build the entire country. So you assemble these models that try to give you a cent based on reasonable inputs, how much it would cost to pass a certain number of homes in certain areas. And these are what we call cost models to get a sense of, you know, if it might cost $7,000 to pass a home, you might say, all right, well, maybe we want to subsidize that home with like $4,000 or something like that. So you're not going to pay the full cost. You got to figure out the appropriate cost to offer as a subsidy. Right. And so the cost, the way the cost models are structured is one of the modules of the cost model is the construction cost. So, so within the FCC's cost models, um, and again, they've got a couple of different cost models um, uh, for fiber, they've got one for wireless. There, there are different cost models. The structure of the cost models includes the cost of construction. And so I'm not saying you should use those quite in the way the FCC uses them, which is to calculate a subsidy. I'm saying that you need something to give you a guide as to whether an application for funding is excessive. The state of New York used the FCC's cost models, or I think more precisely, they used the same company, CostQuest, to guide them. Um, CostQuest had been the consultant to the FCC in developing the cost models. Um, so that when, during the New York broadband program, this was a $500 million program to get broadband into rural New York, um, those of us who made applications for funding, well, we couldn't just say, you know, hey, I need a million dollars to, like, build a network to my house. You had to, you, the, the state of New York used the cost model to gauge whether it was a reasonable request. And so the combination to me of, of even just three tools that a, um, uh, a government agency could use. One, just the identification of long-lived assets so that you can value, you can say, well, we will fund, we will reimburse you for your expenditure on, on assets with a 30-year life. And then to be able to use a cost model as a tool, you're building this kind of network. We know approximately what it should cost. Don't come in to us with an application that costs, you know, some multiple of that. Try to be less than what we would assume it to be cost uh, to cost you. Um, and then the other tool is time. Let's let's pause on time for a second. And I, we don't have to spend too long on this, but the thing about the modeling is that you've made the case it needs to be transparent. We've not had transparent modeling, and that is a problem. So I think the folks at CostQuest did a terrific job in their modeling. Um, their modeling has now uh, been overtaken by a lot of actual construction, and that modeling could probably be improved. Um, you can't get access to their models not because CostQuest is unwilling to give you access, because the FCC entered into agreements and restricts access to the information. You don't want to use public tools that are not publicly accessible. For, for at least to find out whether there could be improvements, either in the assumptions or the mechanics of the, of the modeling, 
and just for the very reason that it is it is better to have more eyes more minds tuned to one thing just just to make it a better a better product a better model mm -hmm. so i i would i would do something more than just take the connect america cost model or the alternative connect america model i would take a version make it public and allow for the public through open sort of you know an open source approach to make it a a better version and then that version could be used by states and counties and the federal government itself for this kind of planning purpose. And then the last factor is time, which is my favorite because I feel like no one understands time and it drives me nuts in all of these conversations. <laughs> so, so I've already talked about, you know, the the one element of time which is the t time of the asset life. It's not only perplexed me for a long time, um but but really uh irritated me that folks will talk about you know how fast they can do something and yet the thing that they're doing isn't going to last i hear this a lot people say like well i'm going to get a network built and it's going to take me this amount of time and and it's going to be cheaper this is the that that's the last aspect it's going to be cheaper it's going to be cheaper for me to put up a piece of radio equipment on a water tower i say yeah but over what period of time? And there's an assumption that because it will be cheaper, it will cost less to the residents to purchase services. And we have not seen that be true. Right. If it were really less expensive to build a fixed wireless network than a fiber network, then you should see that reflected in the cost of the consumer. <laughs> Let me say that again. It isn't cheaper if the price to the end user is more expensive. Man, this is really simple business and economics. It isn't cheaper for SpaceX to put up a lot of satellites if their price, the price that they're charging is more expensive than the price charged by people who deploy fiber networks. It isn't cheaper. The, uh, the way I know it isn't cheaper is because when you amortize the life of a fiber asset over 30 years and then price your service so that you can recover your depreciation expense, your maintenance expense, all of that, guess what? We price our services less expensively for a gigabit symmetrical service or a 100 megabit symmetrical service. It is less expensive to build fiber to the home, to every single rural home in the country than any other technology as long as you consider time in your calculation. Now, the other part of time that I raised, though, isn't the amount of time of the assets. It's the amount of time it takes to build the network. To me, the fundamental mistake of a lot of the programs, the FCC's program, for example, is that they give a lot of time for somebody to prove out whether they've actually built something. The milestones for the FCC's program occur at years three, four, and five, and then another milestone at either year six or eight. Year eight, that's how long you have in order to fulfill your requirements to the FCC. Now, the reason for that has to do with the way the FCC is permitted to raise funds and to spend funds. They have 10-year life cycles, more or less. It isn't the FCC's fault at all. It's a budgeting thing. 
a better way, and this is closer to the way the New York Broadband Program was set up, and it is exactly the way the Mississippi CARES Act project was set up, is you say to folks, I'm giving you one year, or I'm giving you four months in the case of Mississippi. You apply for that which you can build in a short period of time. If you built it, you get reimbursed. And then you could say, and then you could get funded again. Mm -hmm. The way the New York program was set up, and I, I had a small role in doing it, was in phases. It said you can apply for what you can build right now, and you're going to have a year. And then you can apply in the next phase. And then you can apply in the third phase. If you structure a program to say, you're going to have six months. That's all the time you have. You have six months. Guess what happens? People don't apply for things which, which would, of course, take them years and years to do and which you only find out whether they did after years and years. People self-regulate, applicants self-regulate as to how much they're applying for. They only apply for that which they can, they can do because they know if they don't accomplish it, they don't, not only don't get reimbursed, they don't get a second bite at that funding apple. It is better to set these up in terms of increments where those who keep building can continue to get additional increments of funding than it is to try to do it all in one big bite. I really like that approach because it encourages a decentralized and distributed approach as well. You're not penalizing the smaller entities for being smaller because are they expected to quadruple their size if they get a, you know, a, a, a grant of this size? Probably not. They're going to do something that's within their scope. But as you get more toward the FCC, you're incenting private equity to get involved and try to roll up a bunch of stuff to be able to try to build as rapidly, or not as rapidly as possible, but in order to try to maximize the award and then try to figure out how to slap it together, I feel like. And so this is this approach that you're proposing is better for competition. It's better for um, the kind of economy that we want with smaller entities involved, I think. The beauty of the every six months approach is from a regulator standpoint from the the oversight of the government agency spending the money it's easier you're not asking for results some years from now and then gauging whether somebody produced or not if, if you're doing these in six months increments then you know you get the receipts you get to see whether somebody built 100 miles or 200 or 300 miles or again whatever their technology is you get to see and then if it were something you ask well could it fund you know steel towers you don't have to wait three or four years to see whether the thing that somebody deployed is capable of delivering the service you can say well you you know, your application said that you would deliver service within six months to all of these places. Can you do it or not? And if you can't do it, maybe that's the end of your funding. Um, if you can do it, and, and, it, and it, it helps in terms of, you know, it, it, it's the case in a lot of places in, in life and in spending it's easier to do these things in pieces than it is to do it. You might have a whole plan, but for the, for the folks who are responsible for deciding whether the applicant can meet the plan, um, they may not have the ability to consider 
all right, it's a thousand, two thousand, four thousand mile plan. They may not be able to judge that, but they can sure judge whether within six months you built 300 miles. Uh, it's a very different level then of, of review, of accounting, of auditing, and, and it allows for far more public confidence that the money is going to the places it was meant to go because if you were supposed to build in a particular place and the public there knows, then you know they're going to know that within six months. You get this with the, with the RDOF auction results right now. You could say to people as an RDOF recipient, when you get the funds, you can say, well, I've got eight years to get to you. <laughs> I have a plan, but my plan is to get to you sometime in the next eight years. And to be clear for people who are confused, from the money that Ardoff starts um, arriving in the ISP's bank accounts, they have six years, but they can apply for a two-year extension. Ah, uh, you get it. I think. It, it, uh, nah, it depends on whether um, the population in the area where you receive funds was greater in 2020 than it was in 2010. If it's greater in 2020 than it was in 2020, 2010, you got eight years. I want to move on. <laughs> Another benefit of, of the six month is it's less complicated. Um, so I want to talk briefly about, about how this might apply to cities in terms of what Biden is talking about, what, what, um, what the Congress is likely to talk about in terms of long-term incentives. I mean, my sense is, is that hopefully uh, people will listen to this conversation and maybe think about how to structure this spending, because I feel like there's still a, a lot of openness in terms of how to really make sure this money, if we're talking about on the order of a hundred billion dollars, like making sure that money is spent effectively. But I heard from a, a city, uh, my city, um, St. Paul, um, this sense of, well, maybe we're not going to spend any of the rescue plan money on broadband. Maybe we'll wait to see what happens with the infrastructure money. And my response was twofold. It was to say, A, um, infrastructure money, do you remember Senator Kennedy died and it significantly changed um, President Obama's presidency? So we may not have an infrastructure bill if something horrible happens to a, a Democratic senator, um, being that it's a 50-vote um, margin right now, and then or a zero-vote margin, I guess would be the proper way to say that. Um, and then second piece is if there is an infrastructure bill that has a significant amount for broadband, which is certainly the intention of a lot of people that I like and trust in D.C., um, we don't know that St. Paul, uh, an urban area, is going to be involved. The language today from from Representative Clyburn um, Certainly would include much of St. Paul, but I, I have a sense that that language may well may well change. And and so I, I want to put it to you, um, you know, how, how are you thinking about this? And, and you can just laugh openly if you like at the idea that a city that Comcast serves um, runs by everyone's house with a service would be eligible for for money from this Congress, because I I feel like there's a lot of doubt from folks as to whether or not that will happen. Yeah, it isn't the first place I'd spend money. Um, no, but actually, so that reminds me, this is how I was going to put it to you also, because you and I both know if they want to spend $100 billion on broadband, there's just not that much money in rural America. There's not, there's not, I mean, there's just not that many spaces left. People in D.C. think, um, senators, their staff, um, they think that there are entire towns in rural America that don't have anything. 
they don't understand a how much progress has been made but b the nature of the areas that are left and how much it will cost to fix them particularly when you subtract out money that is already earmarked for those areas from federal programs so you know this and i've just sort of laid it out quickly for people so you don't have to go over it but there's not a lot of money for non-urban like if we spend all the money on all the all the rural areas there's still a lot left over it's got to go to some urban area somewhere well i I do think that to get fiber to every single rural home, if done efficiently, would cost between 20 and $30 billion. Beyond the RDOF. Beyond the RDOF. Thank you. Yes. And since, you know, the money tends not to be spent efficiently, the government will probably spend something more than that. But spending 80 to $100 billion just in rural America, that's 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 hard for me to see i i i would spend the money a little bit differently and in an important way though um uh i think it's it's vital that the government not use its position either to confer monopolies through um through the the sort of past doings franchises and study areas and things that guarantee a monopoly to a provider or to confer monopolies with money. Over the last 25 years, the federal government and state governments have done more than their share at ensuring that certain areas of the country only have one provider because they only spend the money on one provider. And while it is, you know, to some people it's, it's, um, I don't know, blasphemy to suggest that money should go to um, in the same geographic area to multiple providers. That's how I do it to ensure competition. What I'm getting at is I think there should be infrastructure funding. I think that infrastructure funding should go towards long-term assets, as I described before. But I think in addition, to ensure that those same areas are not left with one provider for the next some number of decades. There should be something of the nature of a portable subsidy that goes to the provider of service to individual households in high cost areas. Individual households in high cost areas, that's basically what the statute, the Communications Act says should happen, high cost areas. That would preserve a competitive element to broadband for the decades to come. And it would, it would do a lot towards um, ensuring that we don't just repeat the same problems of the past. So how long would that last? Because this is where my particular brand of fiscal responsibility, I don't want to see open-ended commitments for operating subsidies indefinitely. Yeah, so um, there have been subsidies in the telecom industry for 100 years. I guess 115, 10 now, whatever the, um, I think you can decrease those subsidies. I think they would be part of the FCC's normal system and it would go back more towards the way subsidies were, which was on a per subscriber basis. And I think they could become not nominal, but they could become a smaller element. I would decrease the overall size of the FCC's spending programs that is, I would use the CapEx money to replace 
the monies that are that are collected and spent through the FCC's uh, programs and reduce those. But I think it's important to use ongoing subsidies for competition purposes for OPEX. They don't have to be the levels, but but you know subsidies in rural areas of some uh, sort or another, or and not or but and subsidies for people of of limited means for low income mm-hmm. uh, residents of the country. Those are ongoing support systems, and while I'm all for trying to establish you know an affordability benchmark. Something that isn't, you can't find that anywhere. Like, what is affordable? I know you and I had this conversation the other day. I don't think you give subsidies through a program like Lifeline before you define what an affordable broadband service is. If you think broadband is 100 meg down, 100 meg up, mm-hmm. like in the Kleinberg bill or the other, if you think that's what it is, will you tell me what affordable is before you define whether your subsidy should be $50 or $9.25? which are the two benchmarks that are now used, but they're used as a subsidy. They don't say affordable broadband is $30 or $34.95 or $46 or anything. You got to tell me what that is. And I think the ongoing subsidies for certain categories, high cost areas and low income Americans, that's what it says in the statute. You want to do something different? Change the statute. It's a very good argument. It's hard to argue against, but... Let me just say, we should change the statute. We should be putting money into areas. It's 25 years after the Telecommunications Act has passed. We have achieved robust competition in the voice space. We've actually achieved pretty remarkable competition in the television space of moving images. We have gone backwards, tremendously backwards in the broadband competition space from what we had when that act was passed. And I feel like after 25 years, it's pretty clear we need to do something significantly different. And for me, that would be municipal open access infrastructure that um, has a low cost component built into it. Yeah, so I look, I'm not, you know, one to uh, step away from an argument. Uh, I've already told you we're almost out of time. (laughs) All of mine. I'll just say this. Um, Where I work, open access doesn't work. Um, That's not to say it wouldn't work in urban areas. It's just not my fight. Mm -hmm. I get the argument. I mean, I understand, and I'm not against a municipal system getting a vote of its citizenry to raise a, you know, to issue a bond and to build a fiber network. I think it works a little bit better if you're a municipal electric system and you have a a, a smart grid, a distributed generation, distributed energy resource, some rationale for building a fiber network, and then you lease excess capacity. To those, it can be in an open access format, I guess. I'm not against it. It's just not my thing. Well, I've still enjoyed the chance to throw it out there. <laughs> it's been great talking to you, John. Thank you, Chris. I um, I am quite hopeful about this. I think, you know, I think for a lot of people, they've never even thought about the modeling aspect. And so as we as we finish up, I just want to hit back on this one more time, which is focusing on long-term assets, learning, iterating, short time periods using open transparent modeling to make sure we're able to correct these errors. Let me add one addendum to the open open source open access modeling and say it should be open source open access 
mapping as well. Um, currently, the Commission's plan on mapping is the same as its plan on modeling, using proprietary information that's not open to the public, not reviewable, not knowable. And, and the people working on it, man, they're best in the business. I admire the people. It's just not open. Yeah, I, um, I haven't verified this myself, but my GIS and data person, Michelle, told me this morning that the new FCC data dropped and every single part of Michigan has 10 gigabit symmetrical service. So, A, Michigan's been doing really good work through the moonshot, but uh, we can do better on the mapping. That's for sure. Proven once again. QED. I just, if you hear the word referred to in um, the mapping, the new mapping, the data mapping, you hear the word fabric being used. Mm -hmm. just know that they're using a fabric that is not open and available to the public to review. Again, the same thing with the modeling. The modeling, the mapping, in order to decide, are people going to have their own maps? I don't care about that, but if you're spending public money based on a private model and a private map, you're making a mistake. That really needs to be fixed. It also shouldn't take, you know, a year to do all of this. Um, we ought to be able to do an open source, public facing mapping and modeling program that everybody can can use as a tool so that state state doesn't have to create its own tool. Um, and the FCC isn't in the position of, of, you know, they're not hiding the data for nefarious reasons. It's it's just their normal way of approaching all of this. It's it's an expert agency. It should lend its expertise, but it should open everything up. Thank you, John. I uh, I think this has been really fun. Always great to talk to you, Chris. Thanks very much. That was Christopher talking with Jonathan Chambers. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org/broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle's at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle's at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 455 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>